Computer, initialize Holosuite. This is Random Trick Review, the podcast where we analyze and discuss randomly selected Star Trek episodes. Uh, my name's Matt, and joining me as per usual, uh, this time, although from inside the wall of his house, is my good friend Andrew. Uh, Andrew, how are you? Uh, and, if, and if you're a little muffled, uh, that's okay. Yeah, it's a little tight in here. I just have to hope that the light doesn't go out, because that might put me into kind of full-blown uh, panic mode. <laughs> Yes, that's a uh, legitimate concern when you're stuck in a wall. Yeah, I mean, I think the bigger concern for you anyway is that, uh, you know, halfway through this uh, episode, if I, like, uh, you know, start heading towards another podcast, uh, you know, unceremoniously, then that's when I think you should probably really worry. But Indeed, yeah. Now, just in case you missed the last podcast, we sort of mistakenly drew a two-part episode, but we didn't realize it because... You know, thanks to Iris Stephen Bear, we get this two-part episode that has two different titles. So uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, uh, which was entitled In Purgatory Shadow, I would highly recommend you go back to the last uh, podcast from two weeks ago and listen to that first, or else this is going to make no sense whatsoever. And I can once again assure you that the party responsible for the little snafu has been uh, disciplined accordingly. That's true. They've been knocked down to uh, chief petty officer. Their rank is as low as exactly. it gets. Exactly. Exactly. They're going to be mucking around the the uh, the conduits with um, Miles O'Brien. Uh, so yes, we will be discussing and reviewing. Uh, uh, this is the this part is called "By Inferno's Light." It's from Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, season five, episode fifteen. It originally aired on February seventeenth, nineteen ninety-seven, and we actually wondered whether there was more than a week between them and that actually turns out to be that that there is one week between them so not a lot of time to stir over this uh two-part episode uh guest stars andrew j robinson as garrick melanie smith as zial mark alamo as ducat jg hertzler as martok ray buktenica as deos james horan as ikatika carrie stauber as romulan and robert o'reilly as gauron it was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Robert Hewitt Wolf, and it was directed by Les Landau. And in the off chance you didn't get a chance to watch it, here is a quick synopsis. The Dominion fleet comes through the wormhole with its sights set on the station, but instead they turn for Cardassia along with Gull Dukat, who secretly negotiated Cardassia joining the Dominion. On the prison asteroid in the Gamma Quadrant, Worf is summoned to fight a, several Jem'Hadar. While he's whooping Jem'Hadar, Garrick is fighting his claustrophobia as he mo- works to modify the life support system inside a wall to signal the nearby runabout. A Klingon fleet arrives at DS9 after a nasty run-in with the Cardassians' new allies. Galron agrees to reinstate the Kittimer Accords and stand with the Federation against the new Cardassian Dominion Alliance. Worf defeats all the Jem'Hadar sent to fight him, so Ikat Ikad, the Jem'Hadar first, steps into the ring. Ikatika cannot defeat Worf, and just after the Vorta orders Worf's execution, Garrick is able to raise the runabout and beam everyone away in the nick of time. 
The Dominion fleet is heading for the station, prompting the Romulans to turn up out of nowhere to stand against them. But it's all a trap. The Bashir Changeling steals a runabout and intends to set off a bomb in the Bajoran Sun, which would destroy the Armada of ships, but the Defiant swoops in at the last second to thwart the Dominion's plan. Garrick and Worf return to the station with Martok and the other prisoners to a more ominous political situation with the Dominion now just around the corner. All right, let's not keep our uh, listeners waiting. Let's just dive right into part two here and what happens in the episode. Um, so the Dominion fleet arrives and goes through the wormhole and uh, everything is looking like super grim. There's, you know, there's like a whatever, 50 ships or however many it was. And then all of a sudden there's like this weird fake out and they all sort of turn towards Cardassia and then Dukat, who is still flying around in his like captured bird of Klingon bird of prey flies after them. And then he tells them, Hey guys, Oh, jokes on you. I uh, secretly negotiated for the uh, Cardassians to uh, join the dominion. And like, I seem to remember watching this the first time and that was like a huge shock because it's pretty much out of nowhere, isn't it? Yeah, they do a great job of kind of setting it up because they keep saying, oh, come on, Dukat, don't be a hero. They maybe are under the impression that he's going to go and take on all the Jem'Hadar ships by himself. And then it turns out that the big reveal is that he's joined them or he's negotiated the, the two factions to join. Yeah, Kira, Kira has that line where she's like, don't be a hero, Dukat. <laughs> yeah. From, to me, it feels like this would have been later in the episode for some reason. I was actually a little bit shocked that it's like literally the first thing. So not only do we get the cliffhanger, I mean, how rare is it that you actually get a big payoff? Uh, I feel like very rarely, uh, you know, we think of best of both worlds, right? Fire it, fire the, the super weapon, it doesn't work. This is actually a really satisfying payoff to to the two-parter. And I wonder if maybe, you know, we talked last time about this could have possibly been a season finale. And I maybe think this is actually better this way because if you give everyone a summer, they probably would speculate and, and postulate and maybe come up with this, or at least some people might have come up with this. But in the one-week turnaround... I kind of feel like it really caught people off guard. Like this was legitimately shocking. And I even knew it was going to happen, but it still feels pretty shocking. Yeah, like I said, when I watched it the first time, I seem to remember thinking like, whoa, man, that is crazy. Like the Cardassians joined the Dominion and Dukat, like who's been fighting this guerrilla war was like the right in the middle of it. Like it was just, it was completely out of left field. And yeah, it was, it's pretty rare that you get like that sort of a whoa moment, like right after you know, in part two of a cliffhanger. So yeah, it was definitely kind of unique in, in that way. But then I feel like by the same token, after he pledges allegiance to the Dominion, when you start thinking back to the last episode with what he had said to Zial, what he had said to Kira, the way he had been acting the previous maybe couple of episodes, you can totally see that it was being laid out but just because he's such a swarmy kind of guy, you never you just kind of assume that he was just doing his normal Ducat thing. But now that you know the the reveal, you roll back in your mind and it's like, oh, it was there all along. Like such a great little piece of writing. Yeah, that scene, especially with Zial, where he's like really pushing her to leave the station with him, that makes a lot more sense uh, after this part. And remember, we talked last week as well about the ominous line that he had kind of left Kira with 
now you see where those teeth were coming from because he hadn't really been that malicious of late. And then that seemed slightly odd at the time. And we did mention it, but now you're like, oh, okay. So this is the reason he knows all the horses are coming over the hill. And not only that, but they're going to be on his side as well. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of things make a lot more sense from the previous episode. Now, there's that scene in the conference room right after where he sort of makes this like broad communication or whatever to whoever is willing to listen about how, you know, Cardassia is going to, you know, regain all that it's lost and all that stuff. You know, Ducat is sort of, um, it's not unusual for him to be in the middle of a, you know, ret- rhetorical where he's giving a big speech. And that was, you know, that was pretty interesting that he like jumped right on that right away. Now, in that scene, I also had a Seinfeld moment. So do you remember when O'Brien was talking about how, like, oh, the graviton emitters, like, they were sabotaged, and, you know, instead of collapsing the wormhole, they actually made it more stable, and now we can't destroy it. I had this Seinfeld moment. Do you remember when Kramer got his vasectomy? Oh, and it made it, it made him even more potent than ever because they botched it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly what I was thinking of. You know they botched my vasectomy, Jerry? Oh, Really? Yeah, I'm even more potent now. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of when O'Brien was like, you know, instead of collapsing it, it actually made it's it way more stable. Now it can never yeah. be collapsed. Yeah. Well, and I mean that, and that actually comes into play later on because when you know things are really getting heated and war is inevitable, they actually, you know, they can't collapse the wormhole, so they end up having to mine it instead. So yeah, so I mean they stick with this uh, throughout the the rest of the season. You know what? And I kind of said last week that I, I wasn't really crazy about the way that they introduced such a big concept and then kind of washed it away. But now I almost feel like I need to take it back because if they didn't do something like that then throughout the entire Dominion War, the entire fan base would probably be screaming at their televisions, just blow up the wormhole, just destroy it, and then they can't send in the reinforcements. And so this kind of solves that problem or that future problem, because now with the fact that it can never be destroyed, like it's just too big and powerful or what have you, now they have to come up with something different. And I, I do like that a lot more. Well, yeah, that's always like the failsafe, right? Like, oh, if it comes to war, we'll just destroy the wormhole and and, and they can't do it now. So, yeah, it's a very smart piece of, uh, you know, thinking ahead a little bit of saying like, okay, we, we don't want to just have this escape uh, button that we can press at any time. So let's just get rid of it. Right. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Now, I think that you are probably a little bit more into history than me. Uh, I'm not that well versed in it. Is this from some historical figure? You know, is this kind of a famous Hitler speech that they have reworked or Stalin or or, or some dictator who they've taken inspiration from? I know that that's kind of what the entire Cardassians are supposed to be anyway, but this felt very human in a way, uh, as, as embarrassing as that is to say, it felt very much like stuff that I have seen, you know, Second World War, dictators, that kind of thing. Did you get that feel as well? And did you know if it's taken from something? I don't think Dukat's speech is like lifted from like anything, like the, the, the words or the content. But I know that in fascist countries, but sort of in the interwar period, it was very common to have these 
grandiose uh, speeches to the masses and then they would be in front of crowds of, you know, tens of thousands of people and they would be transmitted on every radio station, every TV station. And so I think that's sort of what they were going for here. And there's even a scene later on in the episode where, you know, you see them on these giant screens on the sides of buildings and people are just sort of like milling around and stopping and watching on these ginormous screens, you know, Ducat making this this speech so i i think that's sort of what they were alluding to i don't know if the speech itself is like taken from anything in specific but even just the things that he was mentioning in the speech about bringing cardassia back to a certain level of glory and the name cardassia having a certain weight amongst the quadrant and stuff i mean it was all very reminiscent reminiscent of you know things we've seen in the past even as recently as remember the the make america great or again and, and all those kinds of uh campaigns back in 2016 so it felt very tied through history and it also felt very relevant even today because i feel like that and i don't really know exactly what it is but like basically like when a country falls upon hard times and then you have some strong individual who's going to come in and promise the world to you and everybody basically jumps on board because things have been so bad for so long, right? Um, I think that that is very much like history repeats itself. That's a, that's a very common thing. And so the fact that they kind of uh, got onto that little, that nerve, it was really, really brilliant. At this point in the show, Cardassia had really um, kind of fallen as a superpower, correct? Well, they got whooped by the Klingons pretty bad. They're definitely at their low point uh, at this point. So it makes sense that they would they would do this deal. Let's shift gears slightly and uh, return to uh, the prison asteroid. I forget the number that they gave it. Uh, Worf, Worf is like summoned and he's like, okay, the, the Jem'Hadar soldiers are like, okay, you're going to go to this ring and you're going to fight guys. <laughs> As you do. Well, yeah, exactly. Isn't that what we always you always do when you're in prison? You just, you know, fight the guards until there's none left? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it could be. I'm sure there are movies where that's the case. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, what are you thinking here? I mean, we kind of talked in the last podcast about how it was kind of unusual that they would that they would be doing this, but it also kind of made sense because you're kind of training yourself to fight Klingons. So does it make sense that, like, I mean, I guess they got sick of uh, whooping General Martok around. They wanted some, like, fresh blood. Yeah, and it, it <laughs> definitely had this feeling as if Worf's name had at least kind of percolated through uh, the wormhole and into the Dominion space. Like it seems that they know who he is and they're almost eagerly anticipating this challenge almost. And I think that they did such a great job here with Worf. And I don't rare, I don't often say that because I usually think that Worf is terribly written, but Worf as the, the warrior Worf as the badass, I feel like this is about as good as he's going to get you know, they bring him in and I think you mentioned that you knew that he was going to eventually win like five or seven fights in a row or something. And you don't necessarily see them, but just the fact that he keeps going back to Bashir and they're like, he's got three broken ribs and, you know, he's got all these injuries and he keeps still winning. It just makes Worf seem like the ultimate badass. And uh, man, I thought that was really well done. Oh yeah, the, the, the showmanship was pretty good, especially Martok later on in the episode is like, you know, just pumping him up and, you know, if they're going to write a song about him and all that, it was, uh, yeah, th there's a lot of like hamming up here, I think. Now, in a sort of interesting parallel to that, uh, Worf is out there, you know, literally fighting and Garrick is 
certainly fighting his own battle between himself and his claustrophobia. Uh, but you know, he showed a lot of, uh, a lot of resilience, uh, as Worf did, uh, because he was pretty hell bent on getting them out of there and he was really the only chance. Yeah. I think that is it Martok at one point says too, that like your greatest enemy is yourself. Uh, and I think that that's very, I mean, coming from a Klingon of that stature, it, it very much says a lot. Uh, I, I don't know exactly. Are you claustrophobic, Matt? I would say mildly claustrophobic. If you put me inside a wall and said, you got to fix this thing or we're going to, we're going to be stuck here forever. I would be very, well, I wouldn't say very, but I would not be too thrilled about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody to a certain extent is, is claustrophobic, but I felt like the way that this was filmed was really good because it had the feeling that like you know where they opened up beside the bed it seemed like you could kind of crawl into that space relatively easily but then it was kind of more when you had to stand up and shimmy sideways um to get into where all the the mechanical stuff was that seemed to be where it was really tight um and where there was like very little light the way they filmed it was really interesting because i felt his claustrophobia uh, and uh, I, I think that we've all probably been in a situation, too, where you, you're in like a really high stress situation. You, you kind of talk to yourself or almost try to to kind of amp yourself up. I, I don't know if, that, if you ever do that or not, but I feel like that's a very common thing. So when he's in there and he's kind of like mumbling and rambling him to himself, I feel like I've been in that situation. The filming part was like crazy because like the. The, the light is like right next to his like face basically it's like three little tiny fiber optic lights at least that's what it looked like to me and they're just like hanging there next to his face and the camera's kind of it's close but not like super close but it just like looks like everything is just jam-packed in and yeah it would definitely felt claustrophobic watching it and yeah i think i've probably been in those same kind of scenarios where you know you're you're very unsure of yourself for whatever reason, whatever it is that you have to do. I don't know if I've always, I've ever like, you know, talked aloud to myself, but you got those sort of kind of thoughts of like, yeah, I can do this, even though it's going to be very nerve wracking or whatever, but I, I can get through this. Now the, uh, this Klingon fleet uh, randomly arrives at the station and they've gotten like whooped uh, by the Dominion. This part was kind of puzzling to me, but you know, Gowron just happened to be a part of it. <laughs> and he, I guess he was just out for like a, a joyride in his favorite Klingon battle cruiser and got, you know, jumped by a bunch of Dominion ships. But and anyways, and so they uh, they reinstate the Kittimer Accords, which sort of, I guess, ends that sort of like on again, off again conflict with the Klingons. And they band back together again to stand against the Dominion. How did you feel about that? I mean, it seemed like it happened just kind of like at the snap of a finger to me, which is kind of, it was kind of the only part of the episode that I was kind of like, oh, that's a little convenient. Yeah, it's like blink and you miss it almost. Uh, to me, I really feel like it would have probably felt a little bit better if they had saved this to the end when the Romulans show up. I kind of feel like it would have had more impact if Deep Space Nine had sent out kind of priority one message saying, listen, all these Jem'Hadar guys are, are, are coming through. We don't know what they're up to, but it's looking like it's bad news. And then at the end of the episode, the whole fleet arrives, the Federation, the Romulans, and the Klingons. They could have even done a thing where, you know, Gowron is so pissed that he had jumped in a, you know, a ship and gone himself as well. And 
you know, he comes on the screen and is like, oh, that's it. I'm going to reinstate the key Edimer Accords. And that could be kind of the end of the episode-ish. Uh, that's how I would have played it. This felt out of place for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, it just happened a bit quickly, I think. and uh, But um, but yeah, maybe saving it for the end might have made a little bit more sense. Uh, we get a really great scene with Ducat and Cisco. Uh, Ducat, you know, contacts him on the station and basically says, like, I'm gonna, I'm coming for you. I want my station back, and I got all these, you know, Dominion friends of mine that are gonna, you know, help me do it. And and Cisco and him going back and forth was just incredibly good. And I mean, we've seen so many scenes with the two of them in this kind of a scenario, and it, it's it's always just great back and forth between the two of them. Yeah, and I mean, this is this is one of those things. I think Kira said earlier in the conference room that like the next time I see him, I'm gonna kill him. And I feel like, yeah, you know what? You probably should have done it as quickly and as fast as you could have. You would have saved so much trouble and so much headache if you had just pulled a phaser out the next time he's standing in quarks and just shoot him. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, this is some great tension, some great foreshadowing, and I definitely feel like they are. This is a, this is an episode into and of itself, but I mean the layers upon layers that they're setting up here is is just unparalleled really yeah just the back and forth like between them like you know ducat's like you know that station you're so fond of was built by cardassians and cisco basically says if you want to take you want to try you you know you want to take it back you're welcome to try you know it's like you know it's just so so and we see this numerous times throughout the series Worf is like you know, whooping up all the Jem Hadar that he's, you know, fighting, you know, him and Martok stroll into the little, uh, you know, cell block or whatever. And Martok's, he's beating everyone that they've sent in after him. And he's, you know, talking about, oh, we're going to have a song. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get this like opera composer or whatever. And we're going to write the greatest song about, the, you know, Worf and his glorious victories. And the whole time I'm thinking like, man, how great of a Klingon is General Martok? And I think we've maybe touched on this previously in other podcasts. He's so great. Yeah, and I mean, I think the great thing about him here is just the fact that, you know, th this is really kind of Martok phase two, you know? Like this this is the, the Martok that I feel like we all remember and and, and uh, are so fond of. And it's it's mostly like this is the, the early seeds of us really loving him, right? Um, he is about as good of a Klingon as you probably ever get. He has all the same kind of traditions and history and stuff like that, but he tends to follow them a little bit with a like a, a wink and a smile, you know, like he's not so dedicated to them like Worf is. And because of that, he comes off as being more like approachable, more likable, more kind of realistic, I guess, as well. You know, like it's almost the, the difference between somebody who's religious and follows the Bible, like to the letter of the law and is very preachy about it versus, you know, somebody who kind of takes the broad strokes of what the Bible is supposed to, to say and, and tell you how to, to do it and, and kind of go. I feel like that's the part they got so right with Martok is that he, he's not like a diehard, like got to fight all the time, Klingon. Like he's... He's more intelligent than that, and I think that that's really, really well written. Well, I think he, like, sort of accentuates the fun parts of it, too, right? Like, he's, like, how many times do you hear him talking about, like, oh, we're going to we're gonna drink a half a barrel of blood wine to, to celebrate our victories, you know? And he he, he embraces the, uh, the fun parts of life rather than being, you know, totally straight-edged 
Klingon. I mean, I don't know. I'd have to probably go back and rewatch the movie Klingons and, and maybe watch a couple more episodes of things, but he would definitely be up there as one of my favorites of all time. Uh, we get a nice, funny uh, bit of comic relief. There's a short, short scene between Quark and Zial, but I thought it was actually really funny and worth just quickly uh, mentioning. They're, they're sort of in the bar, and Quark's all down on himself because he's like, you know, if the Dominion retakes the station, like, my business is going to suffer. I'm not going to have any customers. And then Zial sort of is like, well, you might have some Vorta customers. <laughs> uh, I, I, She has that great line where, she, you know, she's like, well, what if the Vorta are gluttonous uh alcoholic sex maniacs was like i never thought of that I, I thought that was a nice little piece sort of you know roughly midway through of a bit of comic relief well in this you know, pretty intense episode yeah it reminded me a lot of remember that uh scene in thunderball where bond goes to largo and largo's got like the right hand man vargas and he's like vargas does not drink vargas does not smoke vargas does not make love to a woman what does vargas do that's like totally what I had in my mind when Quark was like, the Shemhardar, they don't drink, they don't gamble, they don't have sex, they don't do anything, and they're, you know, going to put me out of business. <laughs> uh, back on the asteroid, so Worf is like, I guess, like whooped all the Jem'Hadar that they're willing to throw at him. And so the, the, the first, uh, Ikatika, decides, uh, let's see if he can, let's see what I, he can do with me. And, and he steps into the ring, and, you know, this is like the main event you know, title, title belt bout, you know, and they go for, you know, it seemed like a very long time. Uh, what'd you think of Worf taking on the first? The only thing that I think that they didn't do right here. And I really kind of wish that they had, had done was that, you know, you're only as, as great as your opponent. Right. And so I think they almost needed to give the rub to, the, the Jem'Hadar guy. Like, I think that the Jem'Hadar guy should have came in and said, listen, you know what? Like, you're going to fight me next, but, like, I don't want to fight somebody with a bunch of busted ribs and who's already been in, you know, all these fights. So I'm going to, like, bring in a doctor to basically patch you up, heal you up, because I want to beat you at, like, 100% and then have it be so close. Because, I mean, are we really supposed to believe that this guy is is so strong and so tough when Worf was able to kind of like basically go the distance with all the broken ribs and all the injuries and stuff, it really kind of makes that guy seem a little bit weak, a little bit lame. So I think they should have allowed Bashir some equipment or something to like at least kind of patch him up before they went and did the fight. That would have made the Jem'Hadar guy seem like a much bigger uh, threat. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But I mean, at the same time, you know, the fact that he just, Worf keeps getting up and tapping the little whatever pan like the little post thing the chess button yeah exa <laughs> exactly i think that that sort of makes wharf seem like a better uh, uh you know a tougher uh, opponent because like no that but and that's what i'm saying like they do a great job pumping up selling up wharf but i don't know that they did as equally as good a job selling up the villain basically right i also not really 100% sure that i love the ending where basically Worf is saying like, keep coming, keep coming. And the first kind of gives up, I guess he's like, Oh, I, I can't defeat him. And he, and he, he concedes that didn't seem very Jem Hadarish to me. Uh, I feel like they would have probably just killed him like that. That didn't that seem a bit odd to you. 
Well, that's what the Vorta did. He's like, kill them both. No, I know the Vorta did, but the, the Jem'Hadar guy. Oh, well, yeah. Well, yeah, it was a little bit odd that he just sort of was like, I can't defeat him. All I can do is kill him. Isn't that what Jem'Hadar is supposed to do? It was a little strange that he sort of gave it's like up. they're literally trained just for that. Yeah, it was a little odd that he kind of... I think they were trying to make him seem like an like honorable or whatever because, like you say, he's like at you know hundred percent when they start, and I think they tried to make it seem like he was trying you know he's being honorable about the 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 fight, but it yeah it was kind of weird that he just sort of was like ah, I can't defeat him. Yeah, that part was a bit strange. But I mean, it's like one second, right? I mean, they could have easily just stretched that out and and done the exact same ending, right? So. Well, well, or the other option is like the guy just beats Worf to death, and then De- Worf is dead, and they can't do that. <laughs> so yeah, they can't do that. So I mean, they have to, they have to do something, and I think they're trying to make it look like he was being doing the honorable thing, but it kind of was, it was a little bit strange. Anyways, back on the station. So the Bashir's changeling. We haven't really seen much of him at, in this episode uh, to this point, but he he sort of commandeers a runabout. Uh, it was it was kind of a you know it was kind of an ominous thing because they sort of cut to this runabout cockpit. And there's all these people like passed out on the floor, and he's like imitating a, a, someone else's voice and then flies off. And um, you know he's obviously up to something. And at this point, we don't really know what it is. And I kind of forgotten exactly what it was that they were going to do. So I was you know I was I was pretty intrigued at this point because you know that he's doing something. Yeah, yeah, I remember that he tried to blow up the star, but I felt like the way that that reveal comes about is a little bit, I don't want to say that it's clunky, but um, I, like I said back on the last episode, I think that the fact that we know that he's a changeling and then that is the thing that makes the changeling Bashir like alter his behavior, is it's still apparent here. Uh, you know, when O'Brien goes to visit him and he's like, oh, I've ordered up some new darts. And O'Brien's like, uh, like there's a war going on. You're thinking about darts. He's like, oh, well, I like darts. I like, the, you know, I got to be ready for when the, when the war is over. Like these, it's kind of like, uh, uh, I don't know. I, is it really believable that that guy would have been able to like hide out on the station for two months? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's other than that. And like the thing with Deep Space Nine that I think it always comes down to is just that like, the stuff that we dislike is so nitpicky. Like, that's a really small thing. I think overall, it's really great. And I, I do like that, you know, I, that he gets away without anybody kind of noticing it so they can save the reveal just a little bit longer. It, it's kind of hard, you know, because how do you keep that a secret? You know, that Bashir's been replaced by a changeling. I think at some point you have... Because if this happens just out of the blue... You're, you know, you, it cuts to a runabout. There's people unconscious on the floor. And Bashir's like, you know, speaking in a, another person's voice. You're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, or or if, or if even if they just sort of were like, oh, the 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 Yukon is like taking a run at Bajor. Like, what what are they doing? It, it It's kind of tough to, because it, it it's like something will happen that won't make any sense unless you know that Bashir's been replaced. Right. And I guess the thing is, is that there's so much chaos going on and so much things going on that like, 
they just didn't notice that he had left until it was too late kind of thing. Uh, then, so we're getting sort of towards the end of the episode, and, and we already mentioned that the, the Romulans just show up unexpectedly out of nowhere. Um, I guess I guess the Tal Shiar, like, uh, you know, was apprised them of what was happening, and, and for whatever reason, they decide to send a bunch of ships to the station, and they want to, like, you know, join up and, like, take a stand against the Dominion. Uh, which this was the one part of the episode that was, eh, I was like, this does not make sense. What are the Romulans doing? Why are they coming to the station? It just, I don't know. This was the one part that I, I was really kind of puzzled about. Yeah. I feel like the Romulans would be the type of species that would be kind of forced into a war after being attacked or something, or after being negatively affected. I, I don't know that, that this, this necessarily fit. I mean, if you want to kind of make your own headcanon, you might assume that like maybe the maybe the changelings have imitated Romulan people and they have kind of planted information that would make them think that they need to go because the changing plan is basically to wipe out a huge part of the Alpha Quadrant Armada like in one go, in one in one shot. Um, so I'm I'm gonna kinda like pass on on that and just assume that that's basically what happens. Also, just be thankful that it wasn't the friggin' Kilat Milat or whatever it was showing up with like <laughs> uh, long swords and uh, elvish bow and arrows. So you know what? I- I'm not I'm not going to complain at all about that section. Yeah, I think it was just to like drive the stakes up, right? Because if they wipe out the Klingons in the Federation, that's one thing. If they knock out all three, like they can basically just walk over, uh, you know the the alpha quadrant so i i mean that's i think the reason why they put this in but it it was a little bit it was a little bit puzzling without any sort of prior explanation uh back on the asteroid to sort of wrap things up there and uh you know as this sort of thing is going on where Worf is refuses to uh to give up garrick you know manages to continue back into his little wall that he you know really was struggling with and and he manages to uh to get them beamed away back to the runabout like just in the nick of time like i think the gem hadar actually like had shot like shoots through the yeah, molecules like, yeah as Worf was like being beamed they shot him so like you know it was definitely lucky that they shot the gem hadar guy first <laughs> Yes, it is. It re- Very lucky. It reminded me, remember in Dumb and Dumber? What if he had shot me in the head? <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't I get a gun? <laughs> yeah, like I thought that that was really good. But you know what? Like, um, I think the more touching moment and one of the moments I'd kind of forgotten about was that they basically beam to the runabout, which happens to be kind of conveniently placed very close by. And they, uh, Garrick gets on the controls and Worf basically says like, hey, Garrick, you know, like good job. And he goes, you too. And if you remember the last episode, these guys were at each other's throat. And my memory too, is like, these guys never got along. They always hated each other. And so the fact that there's kind of that little bit of an olive branch peace offering, whatever you want to call it, I thought was actually really nice and and really great. Yeah. That was a, I mean, it's a very short, you know, two lines, but yeah, you're right. It, it does, you know, as they sort of acknowledge each other winning their own, you know, battles that they had to fight in order to escape. It was a very nice little, little thing, even though, you know, part one, Worf is basically like at the first sign of treachery, I will kill him, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And I I mean, and the other thing too is, is that both of those people are very resilient or resistant to saying anything positive and, 
the fact that they they're both kind of men of few words and then well not not Garrick but the fact that it's like sincere as well um says a lot Garrick is a man of few meaningful words or true word or, or true words I su- I should say but I feel like it was I feel like it was legitimate oh a hundred percent yes so they uh, so they escape um and then uh back on the station there's uh there's this you know the the plan is sort of revealed because there's you know this huge dominion fleet heading for the station and as they like get into like visual range they put them on the screen and there's nothing there and they're like oh what's going on here and then they somehow figure out that bashir is you know in the runabout and the real bashir phones them basically. that's right yes they yeah that's right i thought there was something so yeah they figure out that the other Bashir has been replaced by a changeling and he's, you know, going to blow up the Bajoran sun and basically just destroy everything in, in the system. And, uh, so yeah, there's this whole big thing where they got to like stop him, which is a pretty, I mean, it's a pretty smart and, and very dominion plan. I would say it is. Yeah. I'd never see the changelings as being like super suicidal to like sacrifice oneself to, to do this, but it's obviously, uh, a big pivotal part of the plan, right? Is that they're going to wipe out all these enemies. It also maybe was part of the agreement. I want to think like, it seemed like Ducat is at such a, so filled with rage at this point that I almost wonder if it was in the contract that they were not only going to take over Bajor, but they're just going to wipe it out as well. Uh, not that that's said, but I was almost kind of wondering if that was part of it. Uh, this is really good. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a little fast. There's so much in this episode, but I mean, you get the gist of it, right? And it's funny, like with this and with the war fighting, did you feel like you were missing, you know, kind of the Star Trek Discovery level karate fights or like the, you know, the ship battle here? Like to me, it's obviously not as good fighting as in the newer Trek stuff, but man, the tension is so much better that I actually prefer this. Well, yeah, the te- like, the tension is like super high when he's fighting. And um, yeah, the one thing I was going to say about the, the part where the defiant swoops in, I thought those special effects were like really good. They really jumped out at me as being even for this period, like especially for this period, they were actually very good. Yes, no, definitely. And it's definitely not like stock footage either. <laughs> you know, they, it comes out of warp and like grabs the, the runabout. It sort of veers away and you can see the sun in the back. Like it was really cool that's the one thing that i definitely remembered from this episode was that scene where the the defiant jumps in it's an example of where like less is more you know like in these you know new new era ship battles where there's like all these bazillion drones and there's like all these phaser blasts and torpedoes and there's like you know 50 ships all shooting at each other at once it's like it's all things get lost because there's just too much happening whereas this it's like two ships and that's it. And it's very, it was very, I thought it was very good. Yeah, no, definitely. Right. It's kind of like Wrath of Khan, right? Two ships slowly like driving through a nebula, but the tension is so much higher. So yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's so hard to do a two-parter because it kind of has to have something in the middle that leaves you with that cliffhanger. And it's so hard to pay off. Uh, I feel like every season we've had a two-part episode uh, and we've always said that, yeah, you know, the second half, it just eh, it doesn't quite live up. Even the classics, right? I feel like, you know, eh, the second part, it's hard to live up. This might be one of, uh, of the greatest, like, second halves to a two-parter 
uh, in Trek history, um, which I mean, I think we can maybe talk to here. There is kind of like that funny scene with Bashir and O'Brien at the end. Um, and Martok gets assigned to the station. Like, did you have anything that you wanted to kind of mention with that kind of stuff? Well, yeah, the Bashir O'Brien thing is pretty funny. Like O'Brien's all exasperated. Cause like, you mean I've been hanging out with a changeling for two, <laughs> I think it was like, it was like over a month or something, yeah. like six weeks or something. And, uh, and, and Bashir's like, well, yeah, I guess so. And he's like, man, I can't believe this. I mean, there were even signs, uh, because you were easier to get, the other one was easier to get along yeah. with. That was and then, uh, and, and then having Martok assigned to the station. I mean, we already talked about what a great Klingon he is, and having him kind of sticking around and and you know being on a number of episodes is obviously a, a good thing. So that was nice to see that uh, that they would uh, assign him to the station. So I mean, I guess as as kind of just a final hurrah here. Like, do you feel like this is a satisfying conclusion to In Purgatory Shadow? Yeah, for sure. Like, there's really not much not to like about this um like we said you get that kind of jolt right at the beginning when when the dominion ships head to cardassia and it's kind of um you know the pace is a little bit faster in this half but um there's really not a lot not to like i mean there's sort of some building action building tension and then there's the whole big thing where they have to like stop the bashir changeling at the at the last second and and you know i thought the whole thing was pretty good yeah, it's really hard to kind of have three kind of major pieces throughout uh, the episode. And basically, you get the big Ducat reveal at the beginning, which is just like, oh my goodness. Then uh, in the middle, you've got kind of like the war fighting, the claustrophobic stuff, the, you know, the stuff on the station with Cardassia becoming like a new power. And then to finish it off with the changeling and they're going to blow up the state, blow up the whole system and that kind of getting thwarted and them escaping. Like it really does have it all. All right. We're a little out of order here because it's a two part episode and I did not want to keep the listeners waiting, but uh, we'll jump into a bit of background stuff here. Now I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I have never seen the great escape, uh, but this move, this uh, episode was a very uh, obvious homage to The Great Escape. Have you seen it before? Oh, Steve McQueen, my friend. Yes, of course. The Great Escape is a classic. Uh, I feel like they maybe remade it um, multiple times. Um, Now, that being said, I have seen the one from the 60s with Steve McQueen. Apparently, they didn't remake it yet, but you know how it goes with... with Movies nowadays, they're probably going to. I think that there was a sequel, but it was made for TV. Yeah, this is definitely touching on all those same kind of feelers. Uh, Some people maybe also uh, have a kind of escape from Alcatraz kind of feel, right? Like the uh, prison that you can't escape from. Um, But that's Clint Eastwood, of course. Yeah, I totally feel it. And uh, I think that it's uh, homage at 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 its best for sure. Yeah, I think the uh, was it wasn't uh, in that movie. They have to the guy has to like crawl through some really tight spaces in order to kind of orchestrate the escape. Yeah, so I, yeah, well, I'll take your word for it. I guess I'll have to watch it at some point and maybe. Uh... You know, like uh, those movies from the '60s, they're they're a little bit kind of slower to get through, but they tend to have be a little bit better in terms of character kind of pacing. And, like, a lot of those old Steve McQueen movies are really worth going back and watching. Uh, he was uh, 
Yeah, died far too young, and the stuff that he did make was was absolutely uh, banging. I'll add it to my uh, my Netflix list if it's on there. Uh, now we talked a little bit about some of the similarities in Cardassia to some of the other like fascist uh, countries back in the day, and they actually wanted to have this sort of economically depressed Cardassia, and it, they they sort of modeled it after the cultural collapse of the the Weimar Republic, which was the, the you know the government of Germany just before uh, the Nazi Party took over, and um, I, as a you know student of history, I can definitely see the uh, the parallels here in in many ways because you have this you know the Cardassians are this defeated country or whatever you want to call them that's you know sort of really struggling to you know keep their citizens fed and and whatnot and uh, yeah I can definitely uh, see the parallels there with the Dominion sort of swooping in and being like hey you know if you We'll take care of you. We'll restore you to your former glory. And I'm sure that the people were just so hopeless at that point that they were just willing to do anything. Yeah, I don't remember exactly. I feel like the Weimar Republic may have even been in power during the First World War, maybe, or like shortly thereafter. But I feel like they were definitely in power around that time. So I guess they're trying to kind of show, because obviously Germany lost the First World War and then they were in such a dire spot. And the Cardassians had just kind of, they didn't lose the war, but they were definitely getting beat up by the Klingons and that kind of uh, hostilities. And so, uh, yeah, definitely getting a, a Hitler kind of vibe, right? Because Hitler was, uh, you know, famous early on for rekindling the economy and get everybody working and get the roads going and stuff. And then it was kind of later that they were like, oh, wait, he's pure evil, but it's already kind of too late. We're in too deep kind of thing. And they kind of did an accelerated version here. Ducat essentially is saying those same things, but they're far more aggressive early on, which I think for television and for Star Trek, I think is a much better way to do it, uh, to basically just say, hey, listen, you know what? Not only are we going to like pull ourselves up from the depths, but like we're doing it now. And uh, now we've got the horses to do it. And so... We're really going to flex that muscle. Now, we know what happens here, right, with Cardassia, and we know how it eventually plays out. Do you think that Ducat and Co. and the Cardassians were a little bit naive, or do you think that it was just that they were had no other option? Well, they were desperate, and um, they're, they're a very proud civilization, and to have them sort of brought to their knees by the Klingons was very you know, put put them in a situation where they were willing to do just about anything to regain their prior status. And so maybe a little naive, but I think they're sort of put in a situation where they don't really think they have any other options. And, and I mean, there's historical precedent for, for countries that have been in a similar situation, maybe making questionable uh, political choices. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this has gone through for as long as there's been dictators and, and monarchs and, and and everything else, this has always been the case, right? Now, this episode makes several references to previous episodes. I'll just quickly run through them and then uh, we can just sort of talk about how Deep Space Nine is pretty good for this. So there's uh, Worf's desire to fight a Jem'Hadar, uh, the Dominion fleet heading for Bajor and then turning for Cardassia fulfills a prophecy from the episode Rapture, which we reviewed quite some time ago. It was one of the early ones that we did. 
Uh, Ducat pledges to drive the Klingons from Cardassian space, and that sort of calls back to the way of the warrior. And then Ducat also mentioned at one point that Cisco has saved his life more than once. And I think that these like references to previous episodes, I mean, that's sort of a very Deep Space Nine thing to do because it is kind of a semi-serialized show, and they do this quite a bit, actually. At least that's what it seems like to me. It definitely seems so uh, during these kind of two-part episodes. Uh, I'm watching The X-Files currently. Um, did you ever watch that show? Not not as of yet, no. It is sort of on my radar, though. So, like, one of the great things that they did, because The X-Files were known for, like, the Monster of the Week episodes that were kind of one-offs, but then every once in a while they would have episodes that were marked as kind of, like, anthology uh, episodes and so uh, the continuous story would be told through those anthology episodes and they were the more likely episodes to do callbacks to other things and other events and stuff that had happened so it was kind of hard to follow if you weren't watching them all in a row and that's kind of what this reminds me of whenever they're really progressing the story in a major way they tend to do callbacks to older episodes so that if you are a fan of the show, it's like, oh, that's from Way of the Warrior. Oh, that's like from Rapture. But if you're just a random, you know, Joe person watching the episode, it doesn't really matter that much. Like you're probably not going to remember the, the scenarios where, uh, you know, Ducat and, and Cisco had interacted before. But then you're like, oh, I guess he saved his life or something like that must be in another episode. But it doesn't really need to be known specifically. I think that's really good, actually. Yeah, it's true. I mean, if um, if you've never know if you haven't been watched the previous episode or episodes where Worf, you know, said like, "Oh, I just can't wait to fight a Gem Hadar," like it doesn't really matter because he says it himself in this episode. So I mean, it's you know, I found that, I find that Deep Space Nine they they tend to sort of refer refer to previous uh, previous events, and I mean, being a you know serialized show like it is, it's to be expected, I would say. Uh, let's move on to a few character items. Uh, so <laughs> this one was, I, I kind of snicker, but I probably shouldn't because it's not not funny. But uh, Andrew Robinson has, uh, you know, stated that there wasn't a whole lot of acting involved in those claustrophobic scenes in the wall because uh, the actor, Andrew Robinson himself, suffers from claustrophobia. So <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of, um, you can kind of see through it because, you know, he's, he's, he's either a really good actor or he's actually claustrophobic. Yeah. And I definitely got the sense that they maybe just had two walls that were close together and they kind of cut a hole out where the kind of equipment T stuff was like the wires and then just stuck the camera like there. So he definitely seemed like he was squeezed between two walls while he was doing it. If he was acting, he did a great job. If he wasn't much acting, I think the exact quote was, there was not much acting involved. I was already there. Right. So, anyways, uh, good on him for getting through it, uh, at least. Uh, this is the beginning of the the turn from Ducat to being sort of more of a sympathetic character into, like, pure villain. And uh, that was always sort of the intention, that eventually they would bring him into pure villainy. Um, even though sort of through the third, fourth season, they tried to make him a little bit more sympathetic. Uh, did you think that this was an effective way of doing that? Yeah, this is like the ultimate heel turn. The only thing I think with the with doing this kind of thing where you turn him evil is that it makes it really hard for future episodes where 
he shows up on the station or what have you that Kira and Cisco and all these guys have kind of forgotten about this. Like when he becomes like the religious zealot and he's kind of on the station preaching and stuff, like it's hard to believe that Kira isn't just like, Oh, you know what? Like when nobody's looking phaser in the back, you know, like it's, (laughs) he's so evil that he should probably never be trusted again. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's sort of like once you go that way, there's no coming back from it. Yeah. So, but I think it works, you know, because partly because of the way they've set up the character and also partly because of the acting. I mean, Mark Galemo, he makes him such an unlikable character. I know I certainly would have liked to, I, I know I certainly would have liked to have uh, phasered him in the back more at, some, at various points through the final couple seasons. <laughs> no, exactly. And he just, he gets amps up more and more and more as it goes, right? It's it's true, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ikataka, the uh, Jem'Hadar first, he is sort of the third Jem'Hadar first that's portrayed as sort of being a very honorable first. Yeah, that's true. We have seen him. Yeah, there was the one in uh, To the Death. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Ometaclon. And then there was another one, um, I think, from Hippocratic Oath, the one where he's like, figured out that he doesn't need the catch cell white anymore i think that's the other one before this and then there was a couple other ones um there's the one in the the one guy in that episode rocks and shoals where like he leads his men into like an obvious trap even though he knows that they're all going to get killed because that's what the vorta ordered him to do um so i, I thought it was i mean we kind of talked about how he sort of you know yielded in the in the fight even though he probably could have just beaten morph to a pulp True. I guess maybe the thing is, is when they wake their way up to the first, then they maybe kind of like evolve. They become more self-actualized or something because they they see the, you know, they're not brainwashed or something. I don't know. I'm not against it. And I feel like it at least makes the, that species seem slightly more dynamic than just straight like foot soldiers from Ninja Turtles. And then uh, two absences from the main cast. Jake, we've we've talked about Jake, you know, only appearing in you know whatever it is more slightly more than half the episodes but the other one was a little bit a little bit more puzzling there's no odo in this episode and i feel like that must have been for some reason like he was sick or he had another commitment of some or whatever it was because there's a lot of parts in this episode where it's like where is odo like there is there's one line in particular that I was like, that should have been Odo talking about this because shortly after the Klingons arrive and they figure out that like the Dominion's coming, they're talking about like, oh, we need to, or, or sorry, no, it was when they figured out that um, the Graviton beams have been sabotaged and Bashir's like, oh, I guess there must be a changeling on board. And they're talking about like blood screenings and increased security. And Kira was the one who was doing all the talking about security. And I was like, why isn't Odo there? And why isn't he talking about security? And I, I, I feel like maybe he must, Rene Auvergne must have been like, you know, there must have been some, some thing that he, some reason he wasn't there. Cause I feel like most of his, like his, the lines that should have been his ended up going to Kira instead. Yeah, maybe. You could have been filming something else as well. But I, I also wonder if maybe it's like, you know, oh, there's a killer changeling on the loose and they're going to blow up the whole quadrant and stuff. Maybe if you're a changeling, you're going to be kind of like laying low, you know, like maybe eh, I think I'm going to, uh, you know, just go hide in my office for a little bit or something because uh, that 
the whole optics of being the only changeling maybe looks bad, but you're probably right. It probably had something more to do with the actor than the character. Maybe he like was stuck in his quarters reading that. Uh, what was it? That book about. about oh yeah. The relationship, the relationship book. advice book from part one. Maybe yeah. he was like being totally engrossed in that and just for lost track of time. Very, very probable. All right, let's just uh, talk about a few quick production notes here. The first thing that I noticed, um, and I actually kind of knew this was from something else, but those images of Ducat, like sort of addressing the citizens of Cardassia on those giant view screens, um, those were actually taken from uh, an episode called Tribunal, and they basically just sort of put the Ducat image on the screen and sort of swapped it out. Um, did you, did, did that look stock to you or did that look like it was taken? Yeah, from... it did a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like I remember an episode early on, like within the first few, like the first season maybe, or the first two seasons, I do remember that same thing where he was kind of like talking to the masses and it wasn't really like clear enough that you could really see like the lips moving. So I feel like you could just use it for no matter what he was saying. Um, I don't really care. That's like, whatever. They got to save money somewhere. And this is obviously a big budget episode. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's not really surprising that they would reuse something like that, especially in a, yeah, like you say, an episode that probably was a little bit more budget, uh, a little bit larger budget than a typical episode. Uh, the other point that I thought I would, you know, mention here, the fans were, were, you know, have well. This episode has been well received by fans over the years, um, but the producers were like a bit disappointed, not so much with the episode itself, but sort of how it landed as a two-part episode. And I remember reading that Iris Stephen Bear felt like it might work, might have been, uh, might have worked a little bit better as sort of like a two-hour, like continuous episode rather than having to split it up. I don't know if I really see that. I mean, the, the second half kind of moves quickly, but I don't really know how you mitigate that by making it just like a continuous. Maybe you kind of change the order of things a little bit. I, I don't know. I, I, I read that and I was a little bit surprised. Yeah, you know what? I do, this is one of those times where I think I just wholeheartedly agree. I think that it's a great episode. It's a great two-parter. Like, it doesn't need to be dissected by the producers. I think that it's... It's perfectly fine the way it is. And I think that, you know, when you have something like this, that's just pure gold. Just let a sleeping dog lay. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I, 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 don't, yeah, I just don't really see it. And I mean, I remember when, when I watched it for the first time. I mean, I was pretty young, but I, I don't really remember feeling it should. It, it would have worked better as a one single block or, or anything like that. So I don't know. Maybe he's just a bit. He's just too much of a perfectionist or something. Anyways, um, just some like quick, these are more like kind of trivia things to, that we can just quickly run through here. Uh, this episode deals sort of with two major plot arcs over the course of the series. One sort of ends and another one is sort of in the beginning. And that the, the one that sort of ends is the Klingon War because they reinstate the Kettermer Accords and that sort of is done. And then we sort of are shifting over to the Dominion War, which, you know, we're sort of planting the seeds for in this episode. Um, so that was kind of neat how they sort of ended one and started the, the next. Uh, this is the second time Bashir has been replaced by a changeling. I think what's more interesting is that the first time that he was replaced was actually in Rapture, wasn't it? Oh, that's a good question. I believe it was. I feel like that was the one that we watched. The first one was in The Adversary. 
Oh, okay. And that was only temporary. Remember that? That's the episode where the they're all on the Defiant and a changeling kind of wreaks havoc. And he takes and he replaces Bashir for like uh, you know not a very short period of time. Okay. Uh, the next thing, uh, Ikat Ika, the Jem'Hadar first. He's the only named Jem'Hadar to appear in more than one episode. And I was like, really? And then I sort of thought about it, and I was like, yeah, I guess that's actually true because they usually die at the end <laughs> when they're named. Exactly. And the fact that you knew most of their names is probably an indication that it's not like it happens all the time, right? So. Well, it's usually yeah, it usually kind of sticks out in, in your in your memory because it's usually a pretty pretty significant episode when they when they have names. And then uh, the last thing here, the Romulans uh, joining the fleet at the end of uh, this episode sort of foreshadows that they will eventually, um, and they take their sweet-ass time, as we know, but they do eventually uh, join up and, and get involved in the Dominion War, so that's kind of a little bit of a foreshadow there. All right, that brings us to uh, some memorable scenes, quotes, lines. Does anything uh, stick out to you in uh, this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's got to be the Garrick Wharf scene when they both get back to the runabout. That kind of acknowledgement was really uh, kind of hard hitting or or at least it, it felt like it was a, a pivotal kind of point in their relationship. Um, there is a lot of good lines here and stuff, but I feel like that one is probably the heaviest and probably the most memorable because I feel like their relationship as the war kind of goes on is definitely uh kind of set up based on this particular thing all right then um i think for me the one scene that sticks out and i mentioned this already was the the scene where the defiant swoops in and and you know sort of tractors the runabout out of the away from the bajoran sun just because the uh, you know because those are really really good special effects especially for that time period as far as lines, I'm going to go back to the scene where uh, General Martok is, you know, getting all excited about this song he's going to have commissioned about Worf's glorious victories. And then uh, Garrick says, uh, after all, a verse about the Cardassian who panicked in the face of danger would ruin General Martok's song. You know, and so this is just as he's about to, you know, after he sort of had that panic attack and had to like sit down and take a break or whatever and he's you know he's determined to go back in and save them so i thought that was that was a very garrick thing to say <laughs> all right sum it up andrew and uh give me your final thoughts and a rating out of five Jem'Hadar opponents yeah this has to be one of the best second parts to a star trek episode ever like i think that this is is right up there with you know um I mean, I, I, even like Best of Both Worlds, I would feel like the second part isn't as satisfying as the first. We looked at Descent, uh, Time's Arrow. Like, there's so many episodes where the second half is kind of like, eh. Um, this was right up at the very, very top. This has to be a five out of five Jem'Hadar opponents, or as Martok would say, five opponents um <laughs> this is an all-time great and it is built so nicely and so well uh to what's coming down the pipe so yeah uh, just amazing all around well it's um there's really not much to not like about it it's uh you get the curveball right off the bat where Ducat's, uh, you know, flies off with the Dominion that they've joined the, with Cardassia. Like, that was completely out of left field, totally unexpected. I thought the stuff on the asteroid was, was generally really good. The You know, Garrick having to face his fears and sort of the parallel battle of Worf 
fighting all these Jem'Hadar, uh, you know, trying to buy him time to, to get that life support thing modified so they could beam away. And, um, you know, the stuff on the station was good as well. I thought that the the plan to lure all the major powers' fleets to the one spot and then blow up the sun that was very clever, very Dominion. It's, you know, sort of subversive and there's a changeling involved. I mean, really, the only thing that really kind of stuck out to me is maybe being a little bit tricky to wrap my head around was the Romulans just randomly showing up. But, like, you know, it, it, everything else is so good. Like, you just sort of give it a pass and say, well, okay, I guess they're just trying to up the stakes. And, I mean, that would certainly do it. So, yeah, this one, uh, this is going to be... I'm going to go with five Gem Hadar opponents out of five as well. Like, this is... Uh, you know, I'm as I said in the last podcast, when I did my DS9 Top 10, I'm a little embarrassed that I uh, left this one off because, I mean, it really deserves to be there. It's a really great episode. This episode, specifically in the two episodes together, just uh, really, really, really good stuff. All right, Matt, that is the Red Alert Siren. And uh, I know that you thought that maybe you were going to be able to kind of skirt your way out of uh, an episode recall, but I am kind of hijacking your episode here because uh, it is going to be you, in fact, that is going to have to uh, come up with what happens in the next episode here. So I'm going to dig deep into the Breen Helmet uh, of episodes and pull out something real nasty because I feel like this season has been very kind to you. Uh, and so I'm going to go into the deep, deep corners here and pull out what is, in fact, another Deep Space Nine episode. Now, this one is from the season prior. So season four, episode 16. And I have a sinking suspicion you're probably going to know which one this is. This is Bar Association. So Matt's going to uh, take his uh, kind of preliminary few seconds here to jot down some ideas. Uh, some guest stars, maybe some quotes or some trivia. And then he's going to have about 60 seconds to give me as much as he can remember about the Deep Space Nine episode, Bar Association. And he's got a big old smug look on his face. So <laughs> I have a feeling he probably knows which this one is, yeah? I think I've got a pretty good idea, yes. Okay, well then let's not give him any more prep time. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and tell me about Bar Association. All right, uh, there's a, this is a, the beginning of this episode, Rom. Uh, I think he gets like an ear infection or something, and um, he's not able to like take sick time off work because, you know, he's a Ferengi and Quark, you know, cracks the whip and whatever. And um, he has a chat with, I think it was O'Brien, and um, he forms a union with the, uh, the other workers at the bar, um, you know, and they demand better working conditions and so on. And uh, the Ferengi Commerce Association gets wind of this and they send Liquidator Brunt, played by Jeffrey Coombs, to, uh, you know, shut it down and, and all this and that. And uh, I think in the end, Quark ends up getting, like, uh, disgraced or whatever. And he, they, uh, like, the, the, the Ferengi uh, people, like, sort of disown him or whatever because you know he allows rom to go on with this uh this union and um it's a pretty funny episode with some serious parts well as somebody who's a unionized worker this could potentially get very political next week here on rtr if this is in fact the episode where rom makes the union although i have a sinking suspicion that the union kind of wins out my memory is is that quark actually does end up having to give 
certain concessions at the end of the episode, which are, I think, by, like, human standards, like, hilarious. It's like, okay, you may use the bathroom one time or something to that effect. But uh, it should be interesting uh, because I work in a union and it is, uh, you know, there are certain things that kind of come about that, that are like this, uh, whether you're pro-union or against union. I think it's going to be an interesting talk next week. So, uh, not next week, two weeks from now. Uh, so make sure that you come back. It'll be springtime, you know, you can be out sitting on the nice lawn, sitting in the sun with your earbuds in, listening to a little RTR talk about bar association. So uh, until then, see you later, everybody. So long, folks. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Hollow Sweet Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. And it wouldn't surprise me in the sex cabin if the table's wonky, because the amount of times that Kira oh. and Tom probably jumped on there, it's yeah, probably sticky. damaged it. Oh! <laughs> you know that table's sticky. Oh! Suzanne! It's in the sex cabin! It's it a table not just for pool balls. <laughs> If it's a table, not just for pool balls. No. <laughs> yeah. the the thing The scary thing is, is you don't know for sure what that sticky is, because mm. nobody's going to test it. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Loading Holosuite Preview Program Four: The Expanse, an Enterprise podcast. Trip's able to get that taken care of in in a couple hours because I think he had also had to realign the the warp coils. A little bit to, to get it to, to work. Back on the uh, the bird of prey, Soong tells them that he's going to take them to, to the briar patch. I'm not even going to attempt to call it or, you know, pronounce it in its original Klingon <laughs> at this point. Uh, um, lazy. Lazy. Well, you Lacking know. Lacking commitment. <laughs> <laughs> Computer, deactivate Holosuite.